0: I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect. The first time I ever walked into the Supreme Court, it kind of felt like church. You walk through oversized doors into a hall of white marble with high arched ceilings people speak to each other in hushed tones, awaiting the words of nine civil servants in robes who strive to answer to a higher power of sorts, the law. (laughs) Over the last few years, a number of religious people have been trying to tell the Supreme Court that their God puts them above the law
1: clear win for Jack Phillips of Denver, who said baking a cake for a same-sex couple would violate his Christian
0: beliefs. Supreme Court saying that Catholic organizations do not have to comply with these anti-discrimination laws. This do not is to, a
2: big uh, legal cause of conservatives laws. in America, which is telling religious institutions and religious people that they don't have to follow the laws that everyone else has to follow. Think Just this the
0: term, they accepted another case where a Christian wedding website designer is asking the court if she can duck an anti-discrimination law and deny her services to same-sex couples. Over and over, the court keeps taking on this same kind of case and saying, yeah, it's okay if you sidestep the law, but just this one time. They stop short of making a sweeping statement about our freedom to do that the last time they made a sweeping statement about our right to freely exercise our religion, it was not pretty. People across the political spectrum criticized the court for weakening our First Amendment. It was in 1990, and it involved a man named Al Smith. Thank you for talking with
3: the Eugene Airport.
0: Shut up your face. (laughs) This man is not Al Smith. Just so I have it on tape, can you say just who you are?
4: I'm Garrett Epps, and uh, I teach constitutional law at the University of Oregon.
0: When I was looking into Al Smith's very controversial case, everybody told me, you got to talk to Garrett Epps.
4: I had the great good luck a quarter century ago to meet and interview Smith.
0: Al Smith died in 2014, but much of the drama of his case, where he broke a state drug law for religious purposes, took place in Oregon, where Garrett Epps lives. I, I can't thank you enough for, like, you know, picking me up at the airport. I'm so like, excited. You've been waiting. I am <laughs> For a scholar of the law, Garrett had an unusually intimate look into the personal drama behind this case. He still remembers the first time he met Al Smith.
4: It was quite dramatic. My son was at Roosevelt Middle School here in Eugene, They had a thing called the Cultural Heritage Fair. And every sixth grader does a little poster about what they consider to be their cultural heritage. It's fascinating to see what they pick.
0: Garrett says he was walking around the fair. One kid did a poster on the gold miners in her family. There was his son's poster about their family's five generations of lawyers.
4: And uh, there was this booth with this distinguished-looking, very impressive old man sitting in a chair. He is the poster, right? The living human being. This young girl, she said, this is my father, Al Smith.
0: Everybody brought posters, and you brought your dad. <laughs> I would do that.
5: Yeah, I would definitely do that. I would be like, Dad, come on, there's a school thing.
0: <laughs> that girl was Ka'ila Farrell-Smith, Al's daughter. She still lives in the area. He was a very dark-skinned
5: man. Long, black hair. You know, he always had his cowboy hat. He kind of got into the super Indian look. People were proud to be Indians again. And then he always had these
0: red Nikes, like high tops. Al Smith used to joke about how he didn't have an Indian name. Kaila says when he'd go out to eat, he'd reserve a table under a fake name. So he would always write down Red Coyote. People would be, oh, Red Coyote, and they'd look
5: up and, oh, this... Indian guy would walk by, and that was the, that that was his thing. And it was
0: just, like, a way to, like, mess with people, I guess. It was, like, giving the people what they wanted. What want. they
5: wanted, like a spectator <laughs> thing or something.
0: Al spent his life searching for an authentic way to practice his own Native traditions. And that was hard because he'd been cut off from them as a kid. He wasn't really raised around Native culture and ceremonies,
5: and that's kind of how he told his story. But by the time I was born, it was 100%, like, his life oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh,
0: yeah. this week on more Perfect, we tell the story of Smith, Al Smith.
6: he had that that humor that could take you
0: out of depression in a heartbeat. The remarkable and complicated man, he was definitely like combative, but like in his own way. And Smith, the Supreme Court decision. That so many people love to hate.
4: And you know, I wanted, I have wanted, I spent years wanting Smith to be overturned. <laughs> be careful what you wish for.
7: The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States.
3: More Perfect is supported by NetSuite. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash more perfect. netsuite.com slash more perfect.
1: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you... Tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: How are you doing? Good so thank nice you. to meet you. Yeah, come on in. It smells so nice in here. <laughs>
8: Do you want me to take my shoes off? Um, yeah, that'd be great. I, you
0: know, Sage had been burning at Al Smith's house when I got there.
8: Well, I'm Jane Farrell, and I was married to Al Smith for 35 years, and we have two children together.
0: I picked up Al's widow, Jane, in my rental car, and we met up with their daughter, Kaila.
5: So this is it. This is all my family's land. That was sold. For
0: a tour of Al's ancestral homelands. It's now Southern Oregon. And it no longer belongs to the Klamath people. They were one of 109 tribes that were terminated. The U.S. government at one point wanted to assimilate tribes that were, quote, ready for that. So in 1954, it stopped recognizing the Klamaths, sold off their tribal lands, sent them a check. Federal recognition was eventually restored in the 80s, and recently, Kaila bought property nearby. (laughs)
8: Fast. There's Mr. Smith.
0: They took me to Al Smith's grave. I hate this grass. Which was overgrown
8: with weeds.
5: You can this it's, it's uh, not native.
8: <laughs> I don't feel like the writing is really holding up on this marble, you know? We could barely
0: make out the words on his tombstone.
8: So, gosh, it's not, it's not it's legible.
0: This is a man whose name is repeated over and over in the mouths of lawyers and Supreme Court justices. But in court records, Smith, the decision, is completely divorced from Al Smith and the life he lived.
8: Albert Smith, November 6th, 1919. November 14th. November
0: 14th. Al Smith was born on a little patch of green along a riverbed at his grandma's house. The soundtrack to his childhood on tribal land was oars paddling on the Williamson River, the bark of his dog, and at night, the sounds of his grandma praying. I know this because of Garrett Epps.
4: The Feast of Many Disks. Take a look.
0: He had the foresight to record his conversations with Al on now obsolete mini discs. Here we go, Al Smith, 62195.
9: You remember my grandma used to pray in Indian uh-huh.
0: every, every night,
9: see? You didn't know what she was saying. You no. Knew
0: that you Al never learned what her prayers so meant in the Klamath God. language so kind of like because yeah. at about age seven, he was taken from his tribal home and sent to a series of Catholic boarding schools. This was part of a concerted effort by the U.S. government to get Native children ready for assimilation by cutting them off from their Native traditions. Many of these boarding schools were notorious for sexual and physical abuse.
8: I mean, he was the little boy who got his fingers scrubbed till they bled and, you know, was beaten. And sure, they, they were very cruel. And that was the point where he would describe in many of his stories that you can hear where he would say, I learned about high high fences. High
9: fences, cement yards. And
8: cement yards.
9: These huge buildings that I had to live in.
8: And he lost his freedom. I mean, he recognized that, that there was that moment where he lost it. It gets me a little teary.
9: But you obviously didn't, didn't like it because you ran away. You just told me three times. Or more. I started running away, I guess fourth grade maybe, I walked on the railroad tracks and waited for a train to come by so we could catch it.
0: By the time he finally did escape boarding school, he was already a teenager.
9: High school was like kind of the beginning then of alcohol.
0: Alcohol. After a childhood spent shut away from his culture, he was back in a home that now might have felt foreign to him. He drank through high school. One day, he got into a bar fight, ended up in jail for 90 days, and caught a freight train to Portland.
9: How did you live? You, did you work day jobs? Or? Oh, no, I, I Panhandling, and Panhandling? robbing, mm-hmm. stealing. Tough, tough life, huh? It was kind of fun.
0: <laughs> he kept drinking when he was drafted into World War II. At boot camp in the Jim Crow South, Jane says he was forced to drink from black-only water
8: fountains because of his dark skin. He then drank while on duty. And they said, you know, Mr. Smith, I think you might be an alcoholic. (laughs) He said he'd never heard the word before. By
0: 1957, Al was back on the West Coast, drinking again, living on the streets of Sacramento.
8: He was very sick, you know, and (laughs) dying. He felt like that was his moment rock bottom. And he said he literally had had a vision, and this little man had appeared to him.
0: It was almost like a divine messenger.
8: This little man said, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die.
6: So I just flopped over and just started to sweat it out.
0: Al made his way back to Oregon and started going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings.
9: I got around to taking a look at the 12 Steps.
0: And when he got to step three of the 12 steps, make a decision to turn our will and life over to the care of God. His mind went first to the Catholic boarding school God.
9: Screw that God. Bill. Yeah. But I'll try to remember my grandmother's God. Yeah. That'll be my God. God that I didn't even understand. So that was the beginning of a change in my life. Yeah. I had to learn to live all over again and how to behave differently. How to uh, treat people, how to treat myself, uh, a whole new uh, ballgame.
0: Rediscovering his grandmother's god through AA changed Al's life.
8: His story was so compelling, he was asked to speak at AA meetings, and he became Indian Al. In the 1970s, Al began to make a name for himself helping other Native people find sobriety. He traveled the entire country. He took a job with the Alcohol and Drug Commission, traveled to different tribes, talking with tribal council about um, alcoholism. And in the process,
0: he was introduced to a wide array of tribal ceremonies.
8: So he would ask clients, you know, well, you're not a Christian. What, What are your ways? What are your ceremonies? How do you relate to the God that you understand? Ceremonies that U.S. policy
0: had tried to erase when they were placing Native kids in boarding schools.
8: We go to Sundance or, we're, you know, we do sweats or they would say, I'm a Native American church member. And that was where he had first run into the Native American church. The Native American church is a decentralized indigenous religion, practiced
0: in different ways across different tribes. But the defining feature of the church is its sacrament.
8: When he was invited to this ceremony, you know, it was a dilemma for him because of the peyote. Peyote,
0: the cactus plant with hallucinogenic properties. At ceremony, believers take a small button or two of peyote. They
9: got years and years and years of sobriety. Right, okay? about to mess with that man. You
8: know? he took his sobriety very, very seriously and never did not chippy a round. I mean, Al was clean and sober. I'm telling you, no cannabis, no no nothing, right? He wouldn't even take a vitamin. I mean, he didn't take he didn't take pharmaceuticals like Al was he he was clean. Al, informed by his addiction
0: and the tenets of AA, saw Peyote as a drug. On top of that, from what we can tell, the Native American church wasn't part of Al's family's traditions.
8: He was always merely a guest. I'm a guest. I'm an honored guest in these ceremonies, that I don't have my own ceremonies. Like He, he never felt authentic enough, questioning that this was something that was rightfully his. Al
0: struggled with this decision.
8: He went through a lot of you know, mental uh, gymnastics, you know, having to think about this and talk to a lot of people. He talked to Native American elders, talked to friends. They told him
0: it's not that kind of a drug. It's a medicine that could be a part of his life's healing. Peyote is believed to be the flesh of God that allows you to talk to Creator directly. And even if it wasn't his grandmother's god, exactly, it felt more authentic to him than anything else he'd come across.
7: Uh, the ritual, uh, all, everything, the songs, everything else.
0: Al's friend, Jack Lawson, was there the night he ate peyote. Staff, and
7: rattles, and people were singing, and, and it's an all-night ceremony. It's beautiful. And they made Al the cedar man, which is a primary role within... Uh, the meeting itself, and it was just like he belonged there.
0: This was around the first time Jane and Al met, near Klamath Lands in Oregon. They fell in love, got married, eventually had a kid.
5: Yeah. Oh, here, I'll show you a drawing. Hold on. Kaila. <laughs> Kayla. Oh, wow. drawing oh my god, this is amazing.
0: <laughs> Kaila is actually an artist, and she got her start very early, drawing portraits of her dad. That's incredible. <laughs> he has gray pants. It's definitely a stick shift car because you can see
5: all three of the pedals. He's got his driving gloves on. <laughs> he would show up looking great, and <laughs> then he'd find guys hung over on the street. He'd pick you up and buy you lunch, you know. So, th- and that's where a lot of people
0: are like. To this day, like, oh, Al, like, saved my life. Like, that's, I mean, that's just people talk about him like that. Al was a relatively new dad to Kaila when he took a new job at a recovery center in southern Oregon. Unlike his previous work with tribes around the country, this time, Jane says, he'd be the only Indian counselor.
8: I'll never forget, new job, set your desk up. He puts all his little pencils and pens and, you know, and we took a big Pendleton blanket and put it up on the wall. Beautiful royal blue. And he, he's going to smudge his new office. So he burnt some sage and it's sort of like you fresh the air and clean and bring in, you know, good energy. So he gets a little lighter there, gets it going, smoking, smoking, it, getting that smudge going, cleaning the room. And all of a sudden, the entire fire system alarms go off in this building, and they come rushing in, and it was this, the first cultural, what do you call this, a, clash. a cultural clash. And they were literally like, what the heck? Like, I think they actually thought he was up there smoking, or maybe oh, even yeah. smoking weed. Yeah. And so, okay, well we have to he had to explain, you know, it's don't get upset. It's just some sage. This is what we do. Well, you can't do it in here because there's fire alarms. Okay. Uh got it. <laughs> Won't do that again. And that was when we met Galen Black.
0: Galen Black was one of Al's new colleagues at his new job. Hi. Wait, is it, are you Galen? Hi. Galen, hi. Black is a warm white guy in his 70s. Um, can I shake your hand <laughs> Oh, thanks. <laughs> also, a hugger. Amazing. So I got this furry microphone. Al and Black become friendly. Al invites him over to the house, and Black starts to learn more about Al's experiences with the Native American church.
9: Galen was uh, really interested, and so uh, we, we talked quite a bit about, you know, Native American culture and spirituality.
0: There was a meeting coming up, and Black asked if he could go. Al got sick and ended up not being able to go with him. He said, Why don't you go? I bet you'll learn something. So, Black went. He told me he went as a guest. He thought of it like professional development for his job counseling Native people who struggled with addiction.
6: So, as the ceremony progressed, I took that little bitty pencil size eraser size and I prayed. You know, help teach me, help, help me open my mind up so I can help others in, in this treatment. And uh, lo and behold, that's exactly what I got. I felt an instant, solid connection with everybody in that ceremony. My heart was opening up. My heart was learning new things. My heart was becoming more happy. And it was something I had never experienced before. I had went back and talked to one of the other employees about how great this was of an experience.
0: And that became a problem. Word was spreading around the office that this drug and alcohol counselor was going out into the woods and taking illegal drugs.
6: And my bosses told me that I had two options, you know. Well, three options, quit, be fired, or go to treatment. I said, what am I going to go to treatment for? You're out there chipping. You're out there chipping away using drugs, and as a counselor, you shouldn't
0: be doing that. And just like that, Black was fired. A little while later, as another peyote meeting was in the works, Al's boss gives him a warning.
9: He advised me not to take any peyote. She so said, well, who the hell are you? He telling me I can't go. See, then I had Dan balls to, to stand up and say, in a sober, sober way, mm-hmm. screw you. Yeah. So I went and ate a lot of peyote. I
8: remember it was over in the coastal hills here. You know, they put up a teepee, and it was a, it was a beautiful ceremony that you were night. were there? Uh-huh, I was there, and Kaila was a baby. We, she slept in the back. When we brought young children in, we would kind of bed them down behind us in their woolies and sleeping bags. And then the children just sleep all night, you know, while the adults sit up, pray, and sing. So the ceremony was over. That was a Saturday night. And then, of course, uh, Sunday was rest day. And then Monday, um, he went to work. And his boss asks
0: him, did you take any peyote?
9: Well, I took the second sacrament, you know. Prayed for you, the rest of you sick mothers. And I got fired.
8: And he literally came home Monday evening with his little box with that Pendleton blanket <laughs> off the wall, <laughs> and that was it. He's done. He's fired. And here we are. We got rent to pay. What happened next is the crux
0: of Employment Division versus Smith, the case that went to the Supreme Court. Al and Galen Black wanted to collect unemployment benefits. And Oregon's Employment Division is like, no. You got fired for work-related misconduct,
8: taking illegal drugs. Request denied. It's shocking, really. We have this Constitution. We have these protections. There's these First Amendments. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, right? It doesn't take a law degree to know. In the United States, you just don't. Tell people, we're going to fire you for going to your church.
0: Fired for going to church? Then the state of Oregon just says, sorry, you're out of luck? Isn't the First Amendment of the Constitution supposed to protect your free exercise of religion? The answer was a little unclear. It turns out our government has a bit of a sordid history with the First Amendment.
4: We have a lot of episodes of state governments and local governments, you know, doing hideous things to religious minorities, including driving the Mormon people basically out of the border of the United States.
0: That's Professor Garrett Epps again. For the first 150 years or so of the First Amendment's existence, it didn't do much to protect religious people, especially religious minorities. When they sued, courts would most often say, you're out of luck, until the 1960s. That's when the Supreme Court added some real oomph to the First Amendment's right to freely exercise your religion. They turned it into a shield to protect religious people through a case called Sherbert, named for Adele Sherbert.
4: Adele Sherbert had a job in a textile factory in South Carolina. The boss told her they were going to have Saturday shifts. And she said, well, I'm a, a Seventh-day Adventist. I can't work.
0: For a Seventh-day Adventists, church is on Saturday.
4: And he said, well, then you're fired.
0: And just like Al, Adele asked for unemployment benefits after she got fired for choosing church.
4: And they went to the Supreme Court.
0: And the court sided with Adele Sherbert. Now, if a government wanted to violate your First Amendment right to freely exercise your religion— they were going to have to have a very compelling reason to break through the new sherbert shield compelling like saving lives
4: you know like we have to move everybody out of this area because the wildfires coming in well my religion says i have to stay here and burn tough you're out right it has to be that important and this has to be the only way basically the only way to to make that happen right uh, otherwise,
0: you've got to find a way to accommodate everybody. And that's called the Sherbert test. The court went ahead and named it after Adele Sherbert, whose life, I'm sure, would fill a different episode of More Perfect. Back to Al Smith. The question here was, could Oregon pass the Sherbert test? Did
8: Oregon have a compelling reason? This compelling interest, so great, so great, that we need to throw this man under the
0: bus. So in order to force the state to pay him unemployment benefits, Al decides to sue. And his case keeps getting appealed. He won in the Oregon Supreme Court. And then it was time to argue in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. It was just a few days before Al, Jane, and their kids were set to get on a plane to D.C. that they started getting mysterious
8: phone calls in the middle of the night. If you can imagine these little voices coming through like, Is Al Smith there? Leaders from the Native American
0: church were calling in from around the country.
8: They'd all kind of say the same thing, you know, just don't hurt our church, pleading with him these church elders
0: were asking Al over the phone to drop his Supreme Court case.
8: And Al was just pacing. I I have never—he was not someone who I would call anxious or um, fretty. You know, he wasn't a fretting type. Why would they want him to drop his case? Wouldn't they want Al to
0: fight for the sacred medicine?
1: The U.S. Supreme Court had become a very dangerous place for— All rights of of indigenous peoples.
0: This is Stephen Moore.
1: Longtime senior staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund.
0: NARF represented church leaders in 1989. Stephen told me, of course his clients wanted to protect peyote. But they'd seen the Supreme Court fail to protect other Native rights in other recent cases. And they thought the best way to protect the sacred medicine was to keep the Supreme Court's paws off of it.
1: We were concerned that Al was really rolling the dice on on important issues that affected a quarter of a million Native Americans.
0: They thought Al was going to lose. And they feared this one person could end their entire religion. Because peyote existed in a legal gray area at the time. And if the Supreme Court told Al that the First Amendment didn't protect his religious right to peyote— that could have ripple effects. Other state and local governments around the country would have a green light to crack down on the ceremonies of the Native American church. So Steve and Narf had come up with a creative solution. Let's just call the whole thing off. It turns out, if both parties to a case on the Supreme Court's docket settle out of court, the court can't hear the case, and they can't write a decision.
1: NARF actually was involved in creating something called the Supreme Court Project to convince people to stay away from the court if the broader consensus is that it's a, a particular issues in a case are dangerous and, and could be lost.
0: NARF negotiated a settlement with Oregon's attorney general. The only thing Al needed to do was give up his win in the lower courts and give up his unemployment benefits. But this was all very confusing and overwhelming to Al.
8: So it was very, very concerning to me, uh, the state that he was in. This brought up for him, again, his insecurity, that he didn't feel he had a rightful place to represent the church. Very, very painful time.
1: I feel very strongly that, that we were very transparent with, with Al and Jane. We told them what we were doing, and they were fine with it.
0: I let Steve know they were not exactly fine with it. ...very different ideas of what happened.
1: Well, it's, it's, um, (laughs) how, what I will say, um, human communication is a very difficult art. (laughs) A couple nights ago, I, I didn't sleep for several hours and I told my wife, I said, you know, Julia is causing me to go back and process a lot of feelings.
6: Hmm.
1: There were a lot of hurt feelings in Indian country because it. it, uh, I I think it shocked the conscience of of a lot of Native American church leaders. Who is this Al Smith and what is he doing?
0: For Al, it came down to a decision of whether or not to sign a piece
9: of paper. So I I came on home and talk to Jane and some people about, you know, what to do, and of course they just said, well, it's your decision. You decide what you have to do. Now we always in the morning here, it was like it came to me, it's like uh, your kids, the kids are, are gonna grow up, and the case is gonna come up on these days, and we will say, your dad, Al Smith, well, he's the guy that sold out. And I said, man, I'm not gonna lay that on my kids. I'm not gonna have my kids, you know, feel ashamed. Even if we lose the case, you know, they're gonna say, "Yeah, my dad stood up for what he thought was right." You know. So I got a couple hours sleep, phoned the attorney, and told him I said, "Well, let's go to court." You know, we went to we went to Washington D.C. Mm-hmm.
0: and Jane and the kids went, along with many Native Americans.
4: What's it like to sit there, you know, and watch the
9: Supreme Court debate with your lawyer or with the other lawyer about your case? Well, you're a bump on the log.
0: Al sat through the whole thing.
9: Got a certain little section they set you in, and you sit there. And they sit up there and uh, perform. We'll hear argument next. Number eighty-eight, twelve,
7: thirteen. Employment Division, Oregon versus Alfred Smith. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court.
0: They had Oregon's lawyer, the Attorney General,
7: go first. Government's interest in controlling peyote and similar hallucinogens is real. It is compelling, and it's his ever-
0: job is to lay out the compelling state interest that Oregon had for denying Al Smith his in benefits in
7: order to further the health and safety interests of its citizens.
0: He said, peyote is dangerous to the people of Oregon. The feds had labeled it a Schedule I substance at the time for a reason.
7: Peyote is unquestionably a dangerous and powerful hallucinogen.
0: Plus, law enforcement can't play favorites with one religion over another. Justice Antonin Scalia chimed in on this.
7: There
4: is a problem in just allowing all religions to use peyote, but not allowing uh, all religions to use marijuana. —
0: what about marijuana religions? LSD religions? The attorney general said, look, you have to be able to create a general rule, with no exceptions that everyone has to follow. This is when Justice John Paul Stevens pipes up.
9: Your, your flat rule uh, position would permit a state to outlaw totally the use of alcohol, including wine in religious ceremonies.
7: What about wine at Catholic Mass? That's a different question. Why is that different? Uh, the issue of sacramental wine is different because at least at the present, it is not a Schedule I substance. So you mean it's just a, a better known religion? No,
0: has nothing to do the with The difference, Oregon's lawyer says, is that you don't drink wine at Mass to get drunk. But you do ingest peyote for its hallucinogenic effect.
7: Uh, Mr. Dorsey, we'll hear from you.
0: Then Al Smith's lawyer,
7: Craig Dorsey, got up to speak. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court... When you're arguing, it feels like you're only about 10 or 15 feet from the DS. He remembers
0: this day pretty
7: vividly. You actually physically can't see the entire court because they're kind of wrapped around you. Since Scalia was new, he was on the end on my left side and Kennedy was on the end on the right side, and they were asking most of the questions... And, you know, my head is kicking around to try and look directly because you want to engage with them.
0: And he told the court, for starters, this comparison to wine at church, you're thinking about it all wrong.
7: I think if Indian people were in charge of the United States right now, and you look at the devastating impact that alcohol has had on Indian people and Indian tribes through the history of the United States— you might find that alcohol was a Schedule I substance and peyote was not listed at all. And we're getting here to the heart of an ethnocentric view, I think, of what constitutes religion in the United States. In other words, Christianity is getting a
0: pass while Native Americans are being persecuted. Plus, he says, a small amount of peyote isn't proven to be harmful. It's actually been helpful— for recovering alcoholics in the Native American church. So Oregon has not met that Sherbert test we talked about. They've not proven their supposedly compelling state interest of protecting people's safety.
7: The state has failed to meet its burden under the First Amendment to justify what we believe would be the total destruction of this religion.
0: But the justices push him on other points. Here's Sandra Day O'Connor.
7: How
3: about marijuana use? by uh, a church that uses that as part of its religious
7: um, Well, see, I think we can get into a lot of examples, and I don't want to go down that road too far because we don't. don't have the facts here. But the fact is... She said something like, I bet you don't want to go down that road. And there was laughter, you know, in the courtroom, and that's where we knew we had kind of lost her. Subsidy. Why
0: can't the state consider it itself? And then Scalia pushes back, saying, shouldn't governments be able to make general rules like this that everyone has to follow regardless of their beliefs, with
7: no exceptions?
0: So long so as it, long does, as it, does, it does and doesn't pick on a particular religion. Well, the
7: problem is, is this law and the neutral quote-unquote prescription does affect a particular re- religion only. And Scully at one point said, well, you would agree. I suppose you could say a law against human sacrifice would, uh, you know, would affect only the Aztecs. You know, I
4: was kind of at a loss for words about how to respond. I don't, I don't know that that,
1: that
9: that you have to make exceptions if it's a generally applicable law. To me, it was like showtime for them. Yeah, who in the hell's Al Smith and who the no. hell is he, you know? They could care less of who I am. It's like How in the hell did it get so high and mighty? And we, the common people, you know, are just, they don't know you or you or me or anybody else. The case is submitted.
0: And that was that. The last chance to plead his case in front of the highest court in the land. Where it went from there seemed like it would be pretty simple. Either Al Smith would get his unemployment benefits, or he wouldn't. For now, everyone would just have to wait. I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect. And we've been waiting on a decision. In the most simple form, the question of the case is, are Al Smith and Galen Black going to get their unemployment benefits? Or did Oregon have a compelling enough reason to deny them? The issue currently before us is whether Oregon's criminal law against the use of certain mind-altering drugs... Justice Antonin Scalia, who authored the opinion announced the result in court. The headline? We reverse that judgment. Al Smith lost. The First Amendment does not give him the right to break drug laws.
4: Permitting him by virtue of his beliefs to become a law unto himself
0: contradicts both constitutional tradition and common sense. Letting Al break those drug laws just because of his beliefs? That would make him a law unto himself.
4: I'm just curious what your reaction is to, to seeing
9: what the judge, the justice wrote. Well, I don't know what they wrote, but, you know, my reaction to that is, what else do you expect? I'm, I'm, I'm an Indian. You know, I've received this kind of treatment all my life. Right. My people ask, so what, what else is new, you know? So you lost the case at the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Well, sure, of course I did.
0: Al didn't pursue this case because he thought he would win. He pursued it because he wanted his kids to know he was willing to fight. Stephen Moore from NARF had warned him this would happen.
1: When Scalia and the majority rendered their decision, that was just another insult that was leveled on Indian country. Like, you know, you're you're now telling us that we do not, our religion, one of the oldest, most venerable religions in the Western Hemisphere, has no protection under the U.S. Constitution.
0: This was a six-to-three decision. Stephen tried to make sense of what had happened. He even went to the Library of Congress and read Justice Harry Blackmun's dissent, including drafts of it.
1: In the first draft of his dissent that was written by his law clerks, it was typed, I respectfully dissent. And it was a big X through the word respectfully so Harry Blackman struck the word respectfully,
0: a sort of middle finger. <laughs> um. That's close
1: to a middle finger
0: <laughs> that I've ever seen on the court. Yeah. And it wasn't just Al, Steve, and Justice Blackman who were upset by this opinion. Of course, there was like your dad's case, and then the court kind of came out with this decision that became like kind of a landmark decision. Right. Yeah. I didn't. I don't think I really grasped
5: that when I was younger. Scalia, right, Who he? that's the justice that I think ended up being like a real, what do they say in Reservation Dogs, a shit ass. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> First
4: Amendment prevents the government from, quote, prohibiting the free exercise of religion, close quote.
0: Scalia went well beyond deciding Al's case. He made a big, sweeping statement about what free exercise of religion means in America. The Sherbert test, that whole you-have-to-have-a-compelling-interest- to deny someone's religion rights,
3: we reject that interpretation.
0: Yeah, that's dead. Everybody is sitting around saying, "This isn't even. This is
4: not even our case. What? This must be a mistake. They're faxing the wrong thing, or their page is missing." This, you know, nobody has asked the court. None of these issues were posed in the briefs. None of these issues were posed in the argument. What? What's going on? Professor Garrett Epps again. I don't have insight into Scalia's mind. God knows, but he. He was on a mission that had nothing to do with peyote religion. He was trying to do something about the general religious picture in the United
0: States. Justice Scalia felt uncomfortable with the idea that judges would be the ones deciding what's a compelling enough reason to throw which religion under the bus. And in this, he had a point. Take one uncomfortable case from the 70s. The Supreme Court sided with Amish families, saying they could break truancy laws that require kids to go to school. One judge wrote
4: Yes, these are the sturdy yeomen that uh, Thomas Jefferson believed would be the salvation of the American Republic. Of course, you can't make them send their kids to school. But we want to make clear that this doesn't extend to, he doesn't use these words, but it doesn't extend to, like, hippie sects, you know, or or strange groups of people from other countries. It's these good American people. It's like, you read it and you want to hide your face.
0: Scalia's stated philosophy was, let's just not have judges make these kinds of calls. In
1: this job, it's garbage in, garbage out. If it's a foolish law, you are bound by oath to produce a foolish result. Because it's not your job to decide what is foolish and what isn't. It's the job of the people across the street.
0: In practice, it was a philosophy he applied pretty inconsistently. But in Smith, with the rights of Native American religious practice on the line, Scalia decided to stay in his lane and left lawmakers to make laws. There was a new test in town, much easier for lawmakers to pass. As long as the law was general and didn't target a particular religion, it was fine. You don't need to have a compelling reason for it to violate someone's religious beliefs. Scalia wrote, if we had done what Al wanted us to do, the government would have to give people all kinds of exemptions from laws. It would let people get out of everything from compulsory military service to the payment of taxes to health and safety regulations, to compulsory vaccination laws. Scalia's like, you simply cannot have 300 million people all deciding which laws they're not gonna follow based on their beliefs. That would be chaos, which does beg the question, then why do we have a First Amendment right to freedom of religion at all? What does it get us?
2: The ACLU thought the decision was wrongly decided. Uh, We still do.
0: This is Dan Mack, director of the ACLU program on freedom of religion
2: and belief. Why was it wrong? Uh, It leaves minority faiths out in the cold. Justice Scalia said, sure, that will disadvantage minority faiths because the political process is not going to respect them. But he called it an unavoidable consequence of democratic government.
0: Immediately after the decision came down, there was a huge bipartisan interfaith backlash to Scalia's decision. Democrats, Republicans, the ACLU, Christians, all wanted this court decision gone. The thinking was, if this could happen to the Native American church, it could happen to any of us. The First Amendment needs to mean something. So almost as soon as Scalia put it out into the world, people have tried from all angles to undo this ruling. They tried in the courts. They even tried passing a law in Congress. But ultimately, the Supreme Court has stood by the Smith decision. It stayed on the books for the last 30 years. And what that meant, if you were a religious person looking for an exemption from a law, at least for the first few decades after the Smith decision, is that you had an uphill battle.
2: The exemptions were only going to be if the majorities deemed it okay. And I thought that was a problem. The, the key for me, though, in, in these cases is, what's the harm of granting the exemption?
0: Like, is anyone harmed? when you let Al Smith eat peyote? Or is anyone harmed when you let Adele Sherbert take Saturday off from work?
2: Sometimes the harm is nothing. Sometimes, however, there can be a great harm, and and that's where I think we're moving these days.
0: Lately, the Supreme Court has been handing out exemptions pretty readily to certain religious groups. And in fact, this term, we've seen the Supreme Court repeatedly side with religious institutions when it comes to COVID restrictions, where the court has said, no, the the state cannot burden religious institutions. So
1: it's a victory for Catholic social services. It's a defeat for the city. But the Supreme Court seems to have gone out of its way here to make this a very narrow ruling that is not a green light. For other organizations to feel that they can now cite religious freedom in violating anti discrimination laws. And surprisingly, that... today,
0: dis- you might say some of Scalia's worst nightmares about everyone becoming a law unto themselves, the whole reason behind his decision, are coming true anyway, even with his Smith decision on the books. But the politics around religious freedom have shifted. For one thing, Same-sex marriage has been protected in the courts and by Congress. And the people in front of the Supreme Court now aren't from minority religions, like the Native American church or Seventh-day Adventists. They're people from majority religions. A Christian cake baker who objected to serving same-sex couples. A Christian wedding website designer who objected to serving same-sex couples a Catholic foster care agency who objected to serving same-sex couples. They all now see a court friendly to their interests and have asked if they can break a general law, an anti-discrimination law that doesn't target their religion. So far, the court has sided with religious people and has allowed them to sidestep these anti-discrimination laws. In effect, allowing discrimination against queer people. But these lawsuits have also asked the court to overturn the Smith decision, something the court to this point has refused to do. Justice Samuel Alito wrote, it's time to overturn Smith. Others fear that going back to how it was before the Smith decision isn't right either.
2: Religious exercises incredibly important. It's a crucial fundamental right.
0: Dan Mack from the ACLU again.
2: But it's not just a free pass to harm other people. It was meant to be a shield to protect religious adherence, not a sword to be used to discriminate and harm others.
4: And, you know, I wanted, I have wanted, I spent years wanting Smith to be overturned. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for.
0: Professor Garrett Epps again. He says courts, like the Supreme Court, aren't exactly set up to parse nuance. And even though they might have gotten a reputation over the years for being the protectors of minorities, Garrett says they don't have a great track record of that either. Congress has done much better
4: at protecting minority rights than the court. And, you know, we're seeing episodes now where the court's going to step in and say, you know, to the state of Colorado, you can't protect gay people uh, against discrimination. You know, you can't protect same-sex couples. The court's record is not particularly good. And if you ask yourself why that is, it's clear. So like, these are nine well-fed, well-educated lawyers. And if I wanted some deep social pronouncement about how to make America better I wouldn't ask nine well-fed lawyers i you know protectors look ahead they see the danger that's coming they try to defuse it that's not what judges do I, mean, I love them bless their hearts but it's not what they do
7: now a great honor and a pleasure for
4: me to introduce uh, Mr. Al Smith.
0: Back when the decision first came down in 1990, Al Smith was asked to give a talk at Berkeley.
9: Uh, good afternoon. Well, I'm really surprised and pleased to be here. Glad you showed up. Before I get into expressing uh, what I need to say at this time, I... I want to speak to my brothers and my sisters that are in this audience, and perhaps others that may be listening to a, to a tape that I, I want to apologize to, to you, my brothers and my sisters who are natives of this land, if any way uh, this case is harmed you I apologize for that.
0: In the Smith opinion, Justice Scalia basically told Native Americans, take it up with Congress. And a few years later, they did. Native Americans convinced Congress to pass an amendment to the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, which read, quote, the use, possession, or transportation of peyote by an Indian bona fide traditional ceremonial purposes in connection with the practice of a traditional Indian religion is lawful and shall not be prohibited by the United States. Today, the fear from Native Americans of taking their case to a court that's hostile to their interests is very much alive. This term, the Supreme Court could strike down a decades-old law the Indian Child Welfare Act. Tribal experts fear that would threaten all of tribal sovereignty. We're still waiting on a decision. Stay tuned for that. But for Al's purposes, all he wanted was for his kids to know that their dad was somebody who would stand up for what was right, even if the odds were stacked against him.
5: When I travel and people in Indian country, oh my God, they're like, yeah, because of your dad that... We can do all of this. Ceremonies, like, practicing their art. I understand how important it is from, like, what other people tell me.
0: Ever since Kaila moved back to where Al was born, on Klamath lands, people tell her they got protection for the sacred medicine because of Al's fight.
5: I've had intense dreams where he like shows up like I'm like oh my god my dad's here you know like that has definitely happened since I've been home and I don't know you know and it's good you know like sometimes I wake up like I woke up in a dream and it was like he was real like he was right there I remember just like hugging him and it was like and I woke up like crying I was like oh my god it was like I got to see him again. <laughs> like right now I'm getting emotional, like thinking about it. So I told, you know, I kind of made a pack with my dad. I was like, okay, well, when I'm making art or doing art, like that's when we can hang out. <laughs> and I was like, or in the water. So that's why I spend a lot of time kayaking, and that's like my way of like being with him. I've taken my mom down, you know, the Williamson River kayaking, and there'd just be huge bald eagles that just like fly right over you and land in the trees. And you know, she's like, that's Al. I'm like, sure. <laughs> The water, this land, this place, Al was taken at the age of seven years old. It is hard stuff. I'm just like, everything doesn't have to be such a hard memory. You know, like, let's make new memories.
10: This episode was produced by Julia Longoria with help from me, Alyssa Eads. It was edited by Whitney Jones and fact-checked by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Special thanks this week to Samuel Moyne, Andy Lancet, Tasha Sandoval, Micah Schwartzman, Shlomo Pill, Raphael Friedman, Connie Walker, Mary Hudetz, Samantha Max, and the University of Oregon Libraries. The More Perfect team also includes Emily Seiner, Emily Bottin, Gabrielle Burbet, Salman Ahad Khan, and Jenny Lawton. The show is sound designed by David Herman and mixed by Joe Plourd. Our theme is by Alex Overington, and the episode art is by Candace Evers. If you want more stories about the Supreme Court, we've got lots. Go to your podcast app, subscribe to More Perfect, and scroll back for more than two dozen episodes. Supreme Court audio courtesy of Oyes a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. Support for More Perfect is provided in part by the Smart Family Fund and by listeners like you. Thanks for listening.